Hey listeners, this is William Sterling, and you're listening to the Killer Mediums podcast, where we talk about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is grief horror, and we are joined by guest Ross Jeffrey. As a warning, this is a very spoiler-heavy podcast, especially today, so if you want to avoid spoilers for any of today's topics, especially Jeffrey's book, The Devil's Pocketbook, Laurel Hightower's book, Crossroads, or Pet Cemetery. Uh, the books and the movies and the everythings, uh, then turn back now. Also, for this episode in particular, I feel driven to drop a trigger warning. If you are not familiar with these works or their topics yet, we are going to do some deep diving into child loss. And I know that is a very tough subject for lots of people. So if you do not want to revisit that, then I would gently encourage you to leave this episode alone. But okay, all of that said, here we go. Let's get spooky. Coroners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Ross, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm very well, thank you, Will. Um... Yeah, uh, it's sunny for once in England, so uh, I'm excited. I've been in the garden reading uh, Massacre on Yellow Hill um, by C.S. Humble. Um, and I just finished reading the Dark Tower series this morning, so I was like, right, let's get this podcast going. <laughs> yeah. Um, first read-through of the Dark Tower? Or... First read-through, yeah, and it absolutely blew me away. Um, <clears throat> it's quite an undertaking, uh, and I've never read it before and I put it off for ages and then this year I was like no I'm gonna read it and yeah my favorite book of all of them is probably The Drawing of the Three that was my favorite one uh, and then Wolves of the Caller and The Dark Tower close seconds but everybody it seems there's a lot of people that love The Dark Tower so when I started mentioning that I was reading it everyone had their kind of like <laughs> Wizard and Glass is the best book and I was like Nah, it's all right. <laughs> Have you read it? Um, I oh gosh, I'm gonna lose so much horror cred here. Um, <laughs> always fall off somewhere in the Wizard in the Glass. Um, yeah, that's, that's a common thing. It's just it's such a daunting commitment that I get into. I get into it, and then ten other books pop up, and I'm like, oh, I really want to go read that. Like, uh, great, yeah. has something new out, or Mallerman, or like, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to dedicate the next three months of my life just to just to Stephen King. So I gotta, and then I just like don't wind back to it. Um, what else did you say you were reading? C.S. Humble. Uh, yeah, uh, Massacre on Yellow Hill. I think it's called. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Can, uh, we, can we plug that for a second? It is uh, Western. Is part of a series that he's got coming out with. I think it's Cemetery Dance. I've only just picked it up, so I didn't. I didn't know much about it. Um, but I started it this morning. I'm about like yeah, almost halfway through. It is creepy. Is great. Like C.S. Humble's language is just incredible, and conversations and stuff. And I think I watched an episode where he was. It was on with Sadie Hartman, and uh, I think he was just reading like the the first chapter. And if you haven't seen it, go and watch it because like he does a killer job at like reading the book. And uh, yeah, and it's just incredible. And then the second, I'm in the second part now, 
And it's took a whole twist I didn't even expect, but it's it's very, very good. I'm not going to spoil it for anyone. But okay. go check him out. He's brilliant. I, I know I've got one of his from Nightworm sitting on my shelf and I just haven't gotten to it yet. But um, cheers. Cool. Um, yeah. We've been talking about books for a minute. Um, we haven't even introduced you. So I'm oh, as a host. Ross Jeffrey, for anybody <laughs> that isn't familiar with you, why don't you introduce yourself to the guests for just a second? Um, who are you? What is your niche in the horror community? Why are you here to talk about grief horror today? Okay, well, um, yes, yeah, so I'm I'm Ross Jeffrey. Uh, I live in England. Was born and raised in London, and then moved to Bristol for my work. Um, I am the author of the Juniper trilogy, um, Only the Stains Remain, um, the Devil's Pocketbook, which is coming out soon, as we all know, um, and uh, I have another book coming out shortly uh called i died too but they haven't buried me yet uh with clash books that's coming out in um october november and there's yeah lots of other books um and uh yeah my niche and i just stumbled into it really um i it was during covid i started think i've always written um like short stories and stuff and then when covid struck i was like oh, i've got a bit more time on my hands so i started writing um like longer pieces. So I wrote Juniper, which is the first book of the Juniper series. Um, and it was the longest thing I'd ever written. Uh, and then I thought, oh, I love that. So then I went straight into writing Tome, which is the the sequel, which is also a prequel, um, which I was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award uh, in 2020 for, uh, which blew my tiny mind, this kind of new writer getting nominated for such a prestigious award. Um and uh, and then yeah, and since then I've just carried on, um, kind of just carving my own little piece in the horror community, um, just being nice to everyone, um, promoting people where I can, and I think it's underlooked that if you're not being a dick, like you need to like just don't be a dick, and you can be really, you know, you can progress in the genre. <laughs> There's been a lot of dicks recently, I've noticed, but anyway. Oh gosh, you it, you say that like it's such a obvious thing. Don't be a dick, but <laughs> <laughs> and we're already we're only like, like a couple of minutes into this, and I've already said dick. So it's <laughs> looking good wherever we're going. <laughs> yeah. So I guess before we dive into grief or just kind of a form writing uh, sort of a question for you. you. Said you cut your teeth on short stories a little bit and then moved into novels. What was that transition like? Do you feel like the years cutting your teeth on short story like helped you understand something about novelization better or was it just a totally different beast? So I wrote short stories for years and then um, I was in the opinion that I wanted to, very young at the time, I'm still young now anyway, but um, I was wanting to offend people with my writing. I was like, if I can make someone feel really disgusted, then... I'm doing something good. So I wrote all these like kind of, they will never see the light of day, but they're all kind of hideous things and just nothing was off limits. Um, and then, well, a long time ago, I met my wife and uh, like I was, uh, well, my fiance and then became my wife. Um, and like, she kind of read some of my stuff and she was like, like your, your writing's really cool, really good. Um, like I, I really like it, but it's quite dark, like, you don't need to be that dark to kind of get your your points across. And she was right. And then when I reread them, like I, obviously I kept them all to myself. So I never sent them out anywhere. I just kind of like I had a couple of people read them, and they were like, "Oh, that's disgusting." And um, 
And then I stopped writing for about 10 years. Um, I didn't, and I came to books late in my life because um, at school I was, I'm, I'm not a very good speller. Um, I've got some kind of undiagnosed dyslexia. When I was at school, it wasn't a thing. So it was just, you just were labeled as a stupid kid. Um, and then I then went to secondary school and we had to do English and I had a horrible English teacher that um, bullied me. And like when we had to read out in, in class, I'd start reading and then stutter because I couldn't read properly. And then um, then she'd just keep hammering at home. So I didn't read at all. And then um, kind of, I thank my wife for it really. Like she kind of taught me how to read for um, for pleasure. Um, and like one of the first books I read was A Million Little Pieces by James Fry. And I read that and it just blew me away. And I was just like, oh, wow, this is this is brilliant. And it set out like the, the formatting is really different as well. Um, and I was just like, oh, wow, you can write like this and it's acceptable. Like it was complete. There's hardly any kind of um, punctuation and stuff in it and like sentences that are only a few lines. And then it's just it was all over the place, but I loved it. Um and then I just read voraciously for like 10 years when I wasn't writing. Um, and that kind of taught me the form of it and the and the kind of like all adds together and how things can be layered and subtle things can be woven in. And um, so then I kind of used that kind of 10 years of just read and I read everything from classics to kind of horror and and I've always loved horror because my dad had a massive kind of Stephen King collection and William Peter Blatty and all that kind of stuff. Um at the time, I only looked at the covers because I couldn't read properly. So, um, but then, I, yeah, as I progressed, it's kind of and that kind of formational years of kind of just writing short stories, spending like ten years of like studying how it's written and enjoying books. When I came around to writing Juniper, it was just kind of like I Juniper is like a novella, so I started off quite short, um, just to kind of kind of like, yeah get used to the, the writing in a long form. And then as soon as I stepped up to kind of write tome, which is almost double or treble the amount of words, like it just felt like home, like the novel was kind of, and now when I try to write, I can't write anything short and it's really annoying <laughs> because I know, I know novellas are really popular, but yeah, it was really hard to kind of switch back to writing short. And I did that for only the stains remain, but it was really hard to kind of get, get my head back in that thing. So, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a gradual process and, you know, I'm, I, I'm. Well, I hope I'm getting better with each book that comes out. Um, they sure feel like it to me. Um, and like the last, so the last two, so um, Devil's Pocketbook and I Die Too, but haven't buried me yet, are probably the best things I've written. Um, in their kind of prose structure and kind of the themes and, um, yeah, I, and I learn all the time, and and that's the point of reading. Like, if you want to be a good writer, you got to read a lot. Um. And loads of my peers are writing amazing stuff at the minute. So I'm just getting loads of kind of inspiration from them and just kind of like, I'm just in awe of the kind of richness that is in the kind of horror writing community at the moment, especially the indie side of it. But yeah. So if that's if that's kind of your road into writing and, and your road into horror, then let's dive specifically into grief horror. Uh, big topic of the day. So I'm going to preface this entire interview with um, the potentially bold sounding statement. I hate grief horror. Um, Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> this is not a place that I tend to watch or read. In fact, I find myself actively avoiding it a lot of times. 
So for you, who who writes so well in this genre, it's interesting for me to interview you here because I, I get to question you a little bit about something that I don't get. And I'm hoping through this conversation, something can kind of unlock for me. With horror, I think there's a couple of different theories about why people enjoy horror. So there's the escapism aspect of it sometimes, um, or there's the kind of trial run for bad things going wrong and kind of like going through the mental hurdles of how would I handle something like this? Sometimes people can read stuff for that. Grief horror to me doesn't check either of those boxes. This isn't escapism because we're not going to a place that I would want to go to. Uh, we, we are going to dead children. We are going to like horrifying losses and just emotional pits um, that I, I don't want to escape to those places. Uh, and it's not really a good trial run for stuff because one you hope you don't experience grief like this in your loss and two like grief hits differently for everybody so I want to pick your brain a little bit why is grief horror such a prominent subgenre um in your mind so why why do people write this stuff why do people enjoy reading this stuff why do people why do people gravitate to this subgenre mm, um yeah, I think um as I was saying before we started, um like it's uh for me, I seem to have stumbled across an area of writing that I I kind of excel at, um, which is grief horror, which is really odd, as I said before. Oh, like I you excel at it. No modesty here. Oh. You're exceptional at writing this. Thank you, thank you. I'm typical Brit just being like, oh I don't, I don't know. Um uh, but thank you. Um, but yeah, like it's um, it's an odd thing because I haven't suffered much grief in my life. Like I come from a small family, so um, like my I only had one grandparent because all the rest had died before I was born. My dad was an orphan, so he didn't have any family, um, and then so it was just my my granddad um, and my mum's um, auntie. Uh, my mum's sister, so my auntie. Um, and then, I don't know, I haven't suffered much, but those losses that I have have really kind of affected me because obviously my grandfather died last year. He was kind of ill in the time I was writing The Devil's Pocketbook. Um, but him dying last year was a kind of like an end of an era because I have now got no grandparents left. Um, and then before that, my um, mum's sister so my auntie had, had disappeared when I was um I'm gonna say three so I don't I didn't really remember her beforehand um and she disappeared um when I was three and my my mum and my dad spent their lives kind of trying to find her track her down um and then one Christmas so I think I, this is just a little bit hazy but I think I was about 16 um we we're at the table eating dinner and the doorbell rings and it's her. My my auntie Kerry just appears, and it's the first time anyone's ever seen her. Um, and uh, we kind of got got to know her, um, and then within, I think it was eight months, she died. Um, she was a heroin addict, um, and yeah, she suffered an overdose and, and passed away. But and it was odd because I didn't really know her, but I grieved. Stuff like you know imagine having someone that's missing for so long and they come back and then you're just like oh yes you're back and then you start trying to build a fat and then it was just gone and I was just I was quite obliterated by it really 
Um, but they're the only two kind of losses I've had. And both of them are, are almost a little detached, if I can say that. I'm not being mean, but they're kind of like, you know, a grandparent is going to die at some point. There's no getting away from it. But like, and then my auntie, I didn't really know her. So that was another kind of, but um, yeah, I think being a father now, has been a, a, a has enabled me to write grief the way I write it because when I am writing it I'm imagining what it would be like if one of my children died or um it's quite a dark place to go really <laughs> but right. um it helps kind of like channel some of the stuff I'm writing and just the, the the way the characters feel in my books are kind of an amalgamation of how I would feel or my wife would feel or seeing my wife grieving. Um, most of that is, is kind of real and um, it hurts. <laughs> and I think that's on the page for everyone to see. Um, but yeah. And I also think like, yeah, as you said, in the kind of look in the question, it is something that people gravitate towards. And I don't know why, because sometimes I look at my books I'm like why would you put yourself through all that grief <laughs> um but it's also I think like you said as well it's um it's such a vast subject that people grieve in so many different ways um you know like in in my book coming out with Clash um I died too but haven't buried me yet like the the dad in that grieves completely different and he's very angry and um is very kind of obtuse about kind of his opinions and he just he's kind of oh yeah he's kind of dead but he isn't dead if you know what I mean like he's died inside but he's still vicious and annoyed at kind of what's happened and um and then if you take kind of um Lara and Eric from the Devil's Pocketbook they're suffering a kind of personal loss that is just sucking the marrow out of their bones like they can't deal with it um and then it's it's so vast as well i think just human emotion generally and um you know i i, I saw a video last night uh which was someone who had just picked up only the stains remain and i'm not i, I am on tiktok but i'm not on tiktok so i don't understand it because i'm <laughs> old and i don't I, I can't can't get my head around how it works and what you do and how you make stuff but I'm on there and I, I stumbled across it and and uh, this reviewer was bawling her eyes out at the book and it's just a short video but she's bawling her eyes out and she was only 18 pages into it and I think you know and that book especially deals with grief and trauma and child abuse and things like that but some of the people that have read it have contacted me separately and just said thank you so much for writing it because I feel seen and I feel validated and I feel that someone actually knows what it feels like to have done this or to have lost someone or to have been the person that has been abused it's given me kind of scope to kind of see that and I think maybe that is sometimes how people gravitate towards grief horror um you know it is deeply moving and you know everything is every person grieves differently, but sometimes you might pick up a book and you're struggling with your own grief or the like even thinking about it. And someone could have captured how you felt or how you might feel in a book. So it's kind of like a, almost like a dry run, but why would you want to do that? Um, 
or like almost yeah. validating in a sense like yeah kind of like you know sometimes you might grieve and you might just be completely kind of catatonic not want to talk to anyone and if you read a book that kind of sums up that grief that is just so absorbing and, and suffocating that actually the person doesn't do anything and they feel catatonic I think just someone if if you've suffered it that way and you pick up that book you can be like oh that is okay to feel like that that is a response that is acceptable any grief is acceptable but I just mean like you know you're not alone in that type of grief um yeah I think that's kind of answered the question um yeah, that's brilliant I'm kind of in the same boat as you with uh I haven't experienced too too terribly much like personal direct grief um it it's been around me I've experienced it I've witnessed it but nothing to the wells that our characters that we're about to talk get to um but I can see how like not feeling alone in that situation even if it's just a character like kind of mm -hmm being with you could help support somebody in those kinds of moments do we want to get into the books <laughs> uh yeah it's rock so, and roll we've mentioned devil's pocketbook um where would you like to start uh we've got pet cemetery on the docket for today <laughs> moral high towers crossroads and we've got the devil's pocketbook let's go with laurel because i love laurel laurel okay so jumping down to Laurel Hightower's Crossroads, um, first comment, speaking of like positive, encouraging people in the community uh, to, to combat the toxic mm. nonsense sometimes, um, she is my one of my favorite Twitter, Twitter warriors, um, but she wrote a book called Crossroads. Uh, would you like to introduce the book a little bit? Give listeners kind of a taste of what this thing is about and if they haven't done it yet? Yeah, of course. Um, Laurel is brilliant. Um, and for me, because I stepped into this writing business knowing nothing and no one, and Laurel was probably one of the first people that kind of reached out. And, you know, when I was doing my YouTube channel, she was on there and we had a chat and um like she's brilliant and like always supportive um loves drinking whiskey that's kind <laughs> of like what so um and then she wrote crossroads and it was the kind of first book i picked up of hers i think she did um what's the other book whispers in the dark is yeah. that yeah so i picked that one up afterwards but um crossroads was coming out when i was kind of coming out into the kind of horror scene um so I picked it up and um so like the book itself is absolutely devastating like it's not a happy book um the book asks the question of kind of how far you would go to bring someone back um so how deep that grief is that you couldn't live without them and um so like Chris uh, is our protagonist um and her son Trey dies in a car crash and think he's like 21 or something like that he's um kind of had a life he's lived a life um and her world suddenly gets kind of gutted and devastated and the walls of grief kind of close in and she's suffering and uh i think one, one day she kind of goes to his kind of roadside memorial and cuts her finger while she's there on something and um that kind of drop of blood falls on this kind of place where his last kind of breaths were taken and um 
And then when she's home, she then starts to see someone lingering outside that looks remarkably like her son. Um, I'll leave it there because I don't want right. to go too much. But um, but yeah, it's absolutely devastating. Um, and I just loved it. And I, and I think when I reviewed it originally, um, kind of for Storgy magazine ages ago, like I said, it was like a new kind of pet cemetery in a way, like the, the themes. It's, it's wholly its own story. Um, and, you know, Laurel's written a brilliant book, but you could pick out certain similarities, uh, which is kind of probably why we're discussing. The first thing I want to ask about is uh, you touched on the fact that Trey is an older kid that dies. Um, mm -hmm. so I think a lot of us are used to or at least familiar with stories about child death kind of being mm -hmm. at the center of grief horror. So Pet Cemetery is the big, um, like, the... the the big benchmark that everybody kind of gets to measure grief horror off of. Um, and I know in my own mind, when I went into Crossroads, I, I had this misconception that when your kids get older, potentially losing them loses some of its edge, some of its hurt. Like you said, Trey lived a, a more full life leading up to the car accident that took him away. And I was just kind of thinking, okay, this won't be quite as powerful. Laurel cut the legs all the way out from under. <laughs> so, so let's maybe talk about that for a second. Um, mm -hmm. I, know I have kids, you have kids. What is going on there with that bond between parents and their kids? And why is this such a classic spot for us to visit for grief horror um why why does let me find the right way to phrase this question i guess why does grief horror prey on that relationship so much mm. yeah so when i <clears throat> normally when i get a book i don't um i will see the book around i don't normally look it up so i don't normally read reviews beforehand i rarely read the back copy blurb about the book as well so when i picked this up i knew it was grief um and I knew that a mother lost a, a son. Um, but I, I didn't realise when I started reading it that he was he had lived a, 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 long, a longer life, let's say. Um, and I think that really, like, the, how, how Laurel puts it across is just devastating. Like, and then when I, when, I, when I think about it, when I was coming on here and I reread it and kind of, the depth that she goes to in it is incredible and and i think as a as a parent especially you know and i'm not saying if you're not a parent you won't get it because she's written it masterfully but as a parent like yes losing a child when they're a baby or if you had a stillborn is an awful awful thing and i know families that have but as i've seen my children grow into the people that they are becoming um, and those kind of shared experiences and how their personalities have changed. And they're not just a baby, they're an actual person. Like to lose that after, like, well, he's only like 20 odd or something in this, but like having 20 years of memories and 20 years of knitting yourself together with your kind of son or daughter or um, to have that kind of just cruelly ripped away, um, that when it is gone that you can't see your life without that person because they've grown so much they've kind of almost 
grown into your own orbit. And I think Laurel does a brilliant job in the book where, and I, I marveled at this the first time I read it, and then the second time I read it, it just blew me away again, was she doesn't tend to resort to the flashback as you one might, one might think you would. Um, like there are lots of kind of, I think there's a, a scene with his his shoes or his trainers at the door and just kind of seeing those brings up all the emotion of all the times he's worn them and like how like even in the things around her home, like he's still present even though he's not. And I think how those build up and how she certain sees certain things and um, how those things carry memories and um, was just masterful. I loved it. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that's it. It's just losing that those years and that life of knowing someone is just soul crushing. And I hope I never ever have to face it because I will be a mess. And yeah, it's just yeah. I think it's that. I think the the the, the weight of this book is the fact that the, how far would she go to bring someone back that she loved, and that she would go to the ends of the earth because she'd spent such a long time with them. And I'm not belittling anyone that's lost a child younger but for me the weight of it and the weight of that grief that she suffers in the book is because she has loved him for 20 odd years and then that love has just been yeah cruelly taken away yeah yeah mm. that is a brilliant way to put it i think with like infant loss or stillbirths like a lot of the grief is the grief of potential mm. um, like what what could this life have been what could this like child have been but when they grow up like they do a crossroads it's not potential anymore it's like you're saying like a part of you that has grown kind of woven in with this kid this person's life and then to have all of that ripped away in one mm. accident or one whatever else like it's damning uh um, yeah it's also like if you think of like um this is a weird analogy, but I've just it's just come into my head. But like, if you think of like um, like a, a cherry blossom tree, like how beautiful it is once it's grown. Like if you look at it that way, like um, like a, a a baby or a child is probably like the tiny seedling um, on a landscape, like on a hill. You see this little seedling; it's it's not much. It's not become much, and that's like, it's got a lot of potential. And then you see like this huge cherry blossom tree, like taken over the landscape and then imagine that just being chopped down and you've marveled on it for years you've watched it grow and bloom and become this beautiful thing and then one day it's just locked down and like the loss you would feel from that is more than you would if you accidentally trod on that seedling like you didn't know it was going to be something yeah it's awful laurel's written a bloody brilliant book yeah also kudos to you for just pulling out that beautiful scene out of absolutely nowhere <laughs> <laughs> What can I say? This mind is a fertile ground for grief. <laughs> Cheers. There was a line in Laurel's book that I liked as well, which was, um, I've written it down as so I didn't forget it. Um, and I think w when you are suffering grief, you do hurt. And this one kind of summed it up. So uh, she says, um, what was the difference really between physical pain caused by a scar, uh, sorry, caused by, say, cancer and the living hell Chris has been, uh, been in since the day her son was killed? And I think because you can't see grief and you can't touch it, you can't kind of 
you know, you don't get a scab over it or anything like that, or you don't get pins put in your arm to kind of keep it in place, or you don't have radiotherapy treatment to get rid of it. I think sometimes people belittle grief in a way that is unfair. Um, and I think, and I don't know this because I haven't suffered it, I, you know, but I think the grief that um, Chris is feeling in Crossroads is this kind of um, just ocean of grief. Whereas if I think like her son had died when he was a baby, it would, we wouldn't have expanded. Yes, you would still miss your child and you would probably still like long for them as a, as a baby. But I think this there's this ocean of grief that kind of goes out and gets wider and wider and wider the longer they are, are around and you get to know them. And I think that is... And you can't see it, so you don't know how long it's going to last. Like, you know, sometimes, like, my granddad, he, he had loads of books in his house, and I I, I managed to get them when he when he died. And, um, like, I picked one up the other day, and I was just, just flicking at the cover. It was Bluebeard by um, Kurt Vonnehort. And I picked it up, I was just looking at the cover, and then I still got this kind of overwhelming kind of, like, oh, he's he's no longer here. Like, that, the grief is still there. And, it, you know, it, did, it didn't affect me for days but like it was still like that whole kind of just overwhelming feeling um and I can only imagine what it would be like if you if you lost a child that had the opportunity to grow and learn and be and develop their own personality like kind of Chris did in this uh Chris's son Trey did in this like it would just absolutely gut you um and there's no kind of end point for that grief i feel like it can be as long as it can be but i do think sometimes people belittle grief to come on just get over it like they're dead you've had a couple of months to mourn but i think that would that lasts longer i'm assuming the the older and the longer that you've known that person they're my thoughts anyway i might be completely wrong so and this is not to belittle that's too strong of a word but whatever we're going with it uh, this is not to belittle people who are grieving somebody younger, because I think it, when we get to the devil's pocketbook, we'll talk about that too. Like that is mm -hmm. a, like freaking razor of pain and suffering also. But I, I would imagine that you're right, that it hits a little bit differently. I've got one more question about Crossroads here that I wanted to get to. Dealing with grief's connection to a certain place. Mm -hmm. um, so... In Crossroads and in Pet Cemetery, both, um, the the character's grief is very interconnected to a spot. In Crossroads's case, it is the site of the crash where Chris lost her son. In Pet Cemetery's case, it's this um, burial ground just a little ways off from the house. What do you think is going on here with this concept or this this reoccurring theme of having a place that the characters go back to to mourn and functionally having that place kind of leeching off of them and turning on them in a sense as these stories go along? I think um, <clears throat> so. I, I'm going to tell you a little story, but I don't know why it's coming to my head, but we we. As, as children, my family used to take us to quite a few Greek islands and um, they never did it after. I don't know why. They just didn't bother taking us after that. But anyway, um, we went to this, uh, I think it was Crete or somewhere like that. And along the side of the road, and this is like really, well, it was in the 
late 80s early 90s so like tourism wasn't really kicked off in in these places and um so at night time it was really there was only like a few street lights and it was like um olive trees everywhere and you just walk along the roads and go and find a taverna somewhere and have some food and and um i remember walking along the road and then every and there's like kind of cliff faces down the edges and like so every probably 20 or 30 yards there was like these kind of little boxes and obviously it was all written in greek so i didn't understand it and i and i just kind of would go up to them and look in them and there were like these little glass panels and um and inside there was like you know like a little toy and then there was either like a, a picture or there was like something written in, in greek and i was i was just like these and then there was always candles in them every single night there was always a candle in them um and they were places that because this cliff face like basically people had lost their lives like riding their bikes and just crashing there and so it was a way to kind of remember them and as a child i was it was kind of weird and i was like all right okay so that's that's how they do it here like it's a different kind of culture and and i said and i think i i think i was talking to my parents i said well where's their grave and they were like my dad my dad who's quite blunt was just like well there might not have been one you know like they've fallen down there and the car's caught like you know who's gonna go down and i was like oh wow okay so like people stay in places and as my child's mind was just like so this person's body like spirit whatever is like here and that's why they're they're marking it and my dad was just like yeah yeah that's that's right yeah <laughs> want to talk about um and uh and yeah and i think there is something about a place where people die i don't know if it's the same in in the us but in the uk like there is um when someone dies on a road somewhere there are flowers are put up like just on the railings or something does that happen in in the us yep that's a thing over here <laughs> um so they kind of like put those up as a kind of memorial to that little place, even though they're buried like in wherever they are. Um, and I find it really depressing driving around seeing them because after a few weeks, they just turn into like mushy and like dead leaves and, and then they're left. And then it's just this kind of oddity there. And like, you know, I've had to tell my children what they are. So, oh yeah, that's where someone got hit by a car and died. And that's, they're like oh they buried there and i'm like no 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 that's just to remember them in that place that's the, where they were last alive um and it and it's odd yeah and and but it calls to people so every year you'll go past that place and it like the day they died there will be kind of a, all the new flowers are put there again and then they'll die again and then and then they'll appear again and i think death does call people back to certain places um you know, and it doesn't always have to be the place where they drew their last breath. Um, it like for in like kind of Laurel Hightower's book, um, it doesn't have to be this um kind of indigenous burial ground in in um pet cemetery, um where things are buried. Um, it can pull you back to places like where you've shared memories with people, and and I think it's for me like if if something happens to well for instance like my granddad like he died at home uh in his house with um nurses looking after him um and it was a council house and so when he died they kind of like took that property back it was theirs then and um 
but like when I go to see my parents, if I'm going past that street, there is something that calls out to me to just go past it or even just to kind of like, just see where that life I remember was, even though there's nothing there, like his house is there, but he's no longer there. People have moved in. It's got different curtains, different front door. There is something innate in us. I think that pulls us back to those places. Um, either to remember the good times or to mourn the terrible times or to let go of things that we have carried. Um, and however much kind of grief you work through, you are still carrying that grief for a long time and you might not ever put it down, but you might be able to work a way to carry it a little bit longer. Um, so like even just switching hands or like just kind of thinking of something else or you can divert grief's kind of weight, but at the end of the day, you carry it wherever you go. And I think sometimes even just going back to those places and like me going back to see my granddad's house and like I am every time I go there, I'm leaving a little bit of that weight behind. Cause I'm like, okay, well, I know he's not there. And um, I think places are connected to people definitely. Um, and yeah, it calls to the heart to go and visit those. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can, I can see that having a dedicated place to kind of serve as your release valve for some, mm. some of the grief that you're holding inside. Yeah. And I don't think it necessarily always has to be a grave. Um, you know, I would find like if my, uh, I don't know why I'm saying this, but if, if my one of my daughters died, like, I don't think I would, I don't, I, I don't imagine me ever kind of wanting to go and spend time by their grave. Yeah, I would want to spend time in the places that they became alive in. Um, you know, if that was like a walk, like a particular walk we've gone on lots of t lots of times, or if it was, you know, somewhere by the coast, or we went on holiday and had an amazing time, like just remembering the good times, not that that body that is in the ground. Like, I don't think I would. I may do. I don't know. But like, for me, that's just a torture. Like, <laughs> but. Some people they need to they need to have that to remember that their child is dead um, because sometimes grief is so mysterious that sometimes you wake up and you don't remember that they're dead and then you have that kind of awakening in the day like oh no they are they they're not coming back like yeah maybe sometimes but I don't think personally I don't think I would be able to be like going there every week to like check on it I just have to kind of. Remember the good times. Yeah. Okay, let's let's go ahead and jump to Pet Cemetery. Um, it's it's hitting on a lot of the same notes that we're already talking about, um, but just mm. kind of adding one more layer to it. So, mm. with Pet Cemetery, um, first thing disclaimer: we're going to talk about this as just kind of a lump sum of the book and both of the movies and the the mileage varies between these three works let's put it that way uh i think the book is absolutely masterful and mm. i cannot necessarily say the same for one of the movies um but <laughs> they they play a lot of the same notes so we'll just talk about the stories overall mm. um, 
But in Pet Cemetery, the big thing that this story is renowned for is child loss, the family grieving that. Um, we also lose Church, the cat, very early in the story as kind of a uh, introducing us to the mechanism sort of a move in the story. Church, the cat dies. The daughter doesn't want Church, the cat to die. So Judd, the neighbor, teaches the the main father that if they bury the cat in this Indian burial ground right off in the woods, then the church the the church cat will come back. Um, it does, but it's different. So then we progress a little farther into the story, and depending on which story we're talking about, kid A or kid B dies. Um, I'm just going to talk about the book and the core ones where Gage, the youngest child dies after getting uh, taken out by a semi truck on the road near the family's new house. Um, so again, we've got the family grieving. It's a lot more poignant this time. And the dad remembering that they could bury the cat in the cemetery um, decides to bring his son there. Kid comes back, the bad, bad happens. Um, so, um, as far as inciting incidents go, this is one of the scenes in movies and scenes in books that I cannot rewatch. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the semi truck barreling down the road at the child hits me in a way that no jump scare or no practical effects or no anything else are ever going to touch. It is true yeah. horror to me. So, um, what has your experience been with Pet Cemetery? Love this, hate this. Um, and maybe we can spin off into comparisons with Crossroads now. Mm -hmm. Um, I love Pet Cemetery. I think it is, um, if not the best Stephen King book, it's got to be up there in the in the top five, definitely. But in my heart, tells me that it is his best. Um, weird thing, and this is a weird thing I'm going to say right now. Okay. <laughs> weird thing. When I was a baby, <clears throat> so I in my mother's womb, she she kind of takes credit for me being a writer. Um, yes, she raised me and, and I was born of her. Um, but she, when I was a baby in her womb, she was reading Pet Cemetery, And she says, it's because I was reading Pet Cemetery that you write such good grief horror. And I was like, really? <laughs> she, was like, she was like, yeah, that must have come through somehow into your brain. And that's how your brain, and I was like, this, that's that's a book in its own right. Like what are you what are you talking about, crazy woman? But um, anyway, that's that's quite weird. But um, I yeah, believe so. I'm with it with all of the like make the baby listen to Mozart in the womb. Yeah, um, who knows? Sort of a studies like why would auditory transferal be any different than you know mental psychological? Yeah. Sure, I'm here. Big question there because she read uh, she read Pet Cemetery, um, <laughs> Rosemary's Baby. And I think The Exorcist says so you read all three of those like during drama, and I'm just like, no wonder I turned out this way. <laughs> um, but anyway, so back to back to uh, Pet Cemetery. So yeah, I, I love it. Um, I also have a real soft spot for the original film. Um, it was one of the first kind of films I I watched, like I bought on VHS, and like when I had my own 
video in my room and stuff like that. So it was one of the kind of first ones I watched. I also have a soft spot for, I know we're not talking about that one, but Pet Cemetery 2 with Edward Furlong. Like, I like that as well. Um, I'm not a huge fan on the new one. I enjoyed the kind of remake, but I wasn't, it didn't, for me, I don't know, it's the nostalgia stuff, isn't it? Like, I still love the original It version over the remakes, but, um, but yeah, so I do like the third, the, the, well, the remake one, but um, the first one has it for me. And like, um, what's his face? Uh, I forgot the actor's name. He plays um, Judd, um, Herman Munster guy, isn't it? Um, um, Red Gwynn. He just like, for me, whenever I hear Pet Sematary, I automatically think of his face and like him getting his like Achilles chopped and like just mm. gruesome stuff. <laughs> um, but what I, I also, because um, I recently got, a new version of Pet Cemetery sent to me by Folio Society. Um, they've just re-released it in this beautiful presentation box and amazing illustrations. And when I was rereading it for this, I was like, "Damn, like King is amazing!" Like, because <laughs> I was like, "Yes, um, Church the cat dies," but then you know, as 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 parents and as as a kid as well who always wanted a pet my parents were like getting a pet is the best way to kind of like learn what grief is about because once you lose that animal like you'll know how it is to lose something and i was like and damn like king does it in like the first like bit of that book i was just like like they grow like so the kids even understand what grief is um and i was just like oh wow that's cool and then obviously it escalates and um we see kind of what happens to um, Gage and um, and then, but there is also something else I noticed when I was rereading it is that I think this is right. His is it um, Rachel's sister called called Zelda? Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Oh, Zelda. Did that whole bit freak me out in the book? It freaked me out in a film even worse. That, that, and I didn't realise until I was preparing for this show that Zelda in the film was played by a man. Really? Yeah. It's called Andrew Hadastek, um, or Habustek. I can't remember. I can't even read my own writing. But um, when I looked it up, it was like Zelda, and then it was a man's name. And I was just like, oh, wow. that's I didn't even think that. I just thought it was some really scary woman. But you're looking up now, I can tell. Yeah, I'm, uh, up over here on the side. <laughs> Uh, I was just like, oh wow, Andrew Hubertes, Hubertsek. But yeah, and I had no idea when I watched it. I just thought it was the most scariest woman I've ever seen in my life. Um, And uh, that's something that isn't really kind of spoken about. Well, you don't, you kind of forget it because obviously the book is such a banger in the in the themes of grief that you don't kind of. I think the book covers it a bit more than the films do, but there's that whole grief that um, that Rachel has for her sister, um, that she was ill and, and all that. And it's kind of like you, that is an additional layer that is kind of like spruced on there of kind of grief about illness and grief of losing someone after a long illness or even feeling guilty after losing that person to illness because of the time that they took from either your parents or 
the times that you didn't have because you were always sitting in a hotel a hospital room or you couldn't go and do something because of that and it's kind of that release of her grief through that uh is impressive in the book um and in the film it's just damn scary like i don't um but yeah and like just and it, it kind of mirrors up a little bit with kind of crossroads in that kind of that almost that um I don't want to say sacrificial because it's not really sacrificial, but kind of that giving of something over so you can get something back in return. And obviously um, Lewis kind of takes um, the child um, to the gravestones and, and does that and then gets something back that he's not expecting. Uh, like it's not what he imagined. Um, and then obviously in, in Crossroads, you've got Chris, you know, cuts her hand and her blood kind of brings Trey back. And he's not kind of what you expected. And it's kind of, and it's kind of, yeah, like the line in, in Pet Cemetery: sometimes dead is better uh, because you don't know kind of if there is this way of bringing people back, you know, that life that you had is no longer like grief still clings to you, no matter how clean you think you are of it. So even bringing someone back from the dead, that grief is still in your heart, in your mind, in your very being. So even if you had that person back, those thoughts and feelings would still remain. So it would taint kind of everything you see, um, which is kind of like, um, uh, what was I going to say? It was, there was a link there to the Dark Tower, but I can't remember because it was right in my head then. But anyway, power is a will that keeps turning. Um, but And also talk about uh, the Dark Tower. There was an interesting bit in there where King turns up you might not have got that far. Sorry, spoilers. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, yes, the king's in there talking about his son, and I didn't, I, I didn't really realize that. Kind of in there, he talks about like his. I don't know if it was um, Joe or Owen, but they lived near a busy road, and one of them was. He talks about that he was running towards the road, had the scare of his life, thought this truck was going to mow him down, and then and then he talks that he's going to go and write this book about a thing like that, and it turns out to be Pet Cemetery. Um, so it's kind of, um, I, I'm a, a, a shoot, I don't know if it has an afterword in it or anything like that, but I'm assuming some of that is based on King's own kind of fears of losing his son or lose almost losing his son. If that is, is the case that that happened, um, like that is fuel for the fire. If you're going to write something, if that, if you just had a near miss where you've just basically seen your whole life mapped out with just this vacant place at the dinner table, you're you're going to be writing from a place that you know of or nearly knew of. Um, but yeah, it's a masterful story. Like I loved it. And, um, and it kind of, it is a subtle build because yeah, you have like early on, you have the kind of um, Victor Pascal, um, the kind of sports player who kind of is in a car accident and, and smashes his head open. And like he, or he gets kind of brought in um, to, kind of because uh, um obviously just to catch up people up like uh the creeds move to this new place to kind of set up this kind of fart like he's going to be a head doctor or something there and um and like i think one of the first days on his job this kind of tragic accident happens to like this uh football player on the school's team called victor pascal and he gets brought in and he's like the descriptions in it like i, I also listened to this ages ago on audiobook and whoever did the audiobook for it nailed it because like just the descriptions alone about victor pascal's head and what it's like and what's happening is 
just hideous and it really made it made my stomach turn just listening to him and um and yeah so there's that kind of grief there that he has it's short term because obviously he doesn't know this person but in that moment his main job is to try and save this person and he's trying his best but he just can't like there's no way to save him and then he dies and then there's that layered on top of church getting killed and then that then laid on top of um gauge getting kind of mowed down in the most horrific way and then it kind of then you've got zelda so it's kind of all these kind of like things just build up build up build up and then you just have the kind of amazing kind of finale like one of king's best endings ever and also i don't know what this is about king writing bad endings because i quite like all of them (laughs) um but there's a big thing about that but this one is just for me, it is Chef Kiss, brilliant. Like I can't fault it. It's one of my favourites, um, and just the grief in it is fathomless. Right? There's just so much of it. Yeah, it, I had never thought before through how many different styles of grief and loss there are. Because you're right, there's there's the random acquaintance loss. Like, okay, this this was a person. Mm very sad that they're gone but it doesn't really you know it it doesn't really hit creed the way that the rest of them are about to but then that also that with with victor pascal as well you get the kind of um recurring visions of victor pascal so kind of like he'd be in bed and then like he's walking in on like or just so it's playing on his mind so he's in this kind of agitated state um yeah and then you've got yeah church and all that lot as well the slow loss of Zelda versus the very fast loss of Gage and just like mm. the differences of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, we are, we are chewing through time here. So I want to go ahead and move on from Pet Cemetery, even though there's a lot more we could be unpacking here. Uh, Cause I want to dedicate a lot of time to the devil's pocketbook. Um, so this is coming out from Darklit Press. When? The 23rd of May. All right. So three days or something like that. Yeah. But whenever this comes out, I don't know. But yeah, it's three <laughs> days from now. Gotcha. Three days from recording. It will probably have been out for about a week when this episode actually drops. Um, but coming out from Dark Lip Press, um, I've read it. It is phenomenal um, and hits on just like everything we've been talking about. But um, throwing it over to you, how would you like to set the stage for the Devil's Pocketbook? Uh, um, out, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, so I don't want to give too much away, but right. Um, uh, the Devil's Pocketbook is set um, kind of in the seaside town of Paul Perro in Cornwall in the UK. Um it's kind of in the off season, so it's not it's not really busy. So it's kind of got all those kind of creepy coastal horror-y type tropes like crashing waves and you can taste the salt in the air, the wind in your face. Um, the isolation is palpable. Um, and Eric and Lara um, have their child was born incompatible with life. So um, they have, have been trying to get along at home, but it was kind of too much being surrounded by all the things that like a crib that the baby will never sleep in and sh- new shoes and gifts and people coming around to with well wishes and realizing that there is no well wish to give because they're grieving. Um, 
So they escape um, to the coastal town of Pulpero in a little cottage to kind of work through some of their grief and just to kind of try and rebuild their their life, their marriage, their relationship. Um, the strain of grief has been really strong. Um, so they're trying to get away to be together. Um, and whilst they are there, they um, discover something floating in the sea and decide to bring it in. And uh, it's not a spoiler because it's on the back of the book, but inside this kind of, um, it's called a devil's pocketbook, but in the UK we kind of call it, we kind of call it devil's pocketbook or a mermaid's purse. So it's this kind of big, that's kind of what sharks are born in, if that gives you an idea. It's like a horned kind of shell. Um, and uh, they pull that in, and when they open it, there is a child inside, and they decide to take that child home. That's kind of a little brief. Yeah. Intro. Um, and it is going to be so hard to ask questions about this book, kind of knowing where it balloons. But um, I, I think I'm, I think I'm safe to say, and stop me if I'm wrong here. I think I'm safe to say that there's kind of two phases of the book. Um, mm -hmm. There's the opening phase where it is just centered on this family and this grief, and then it kind of balloons up into something wild and crazy later on um, oh, that would be correct yeah <laughs> I, I would like to start with kind of a tight lens on that initial grief um with the family kind of losing a baby uh in utero and then going to the town to escape it because that's only like one or two chapters of the book where they're, mm. they're kind of in that phase of the story but you write that grief so profoundly well uh, oh, thank you. Really just like draw us into this awful headspace that both of the main characters are in um so we've talked about this a little bit kind of like glancing blows off of it um with you you haven't experienced too terribly much grief um directly yourself um outside of the aunt and the grandfather so when you're trying to write these characters in that headspace, where did you grow that headspace from? That's a really good question. So um, I was, because uh, normally I write in silence. Uh, well, I did write in silence. Um, wasn't until a few years ago. So I think this might have been, yeah, this was the first book I attempted writing with music. And I had just finished watching um, Midnight Mass. Oh my gosh! Okay, <laughs> uh, and that that kind of that's got a whole lot of grief in that as well. But anyway, and I was like, the soundtrack to that is probably one of the best soundtracks I've listened to in a long time. Um, and in in the soundtrack as well, so it has got all the kind of um, the score is in it. But then you also have these kind of really creepy hymns that are in there as well. So. That was kind of what I was using uh, in the background. And now I can't listen to that soundtrack without picturing scenes of the film in it, uh, or scenes of the film, scenes of my book in on those bits of the kind of soundtrack. Um, and that, that kind of got me into the kind of headspace that I was after, because it, it, it does have a kind of sense of isolation in the soundtrack. Like I really, like the score is really kind of creepy and, and stripped back and it kind of, helped me get into the mindset of the isolation 
of where they were. So that kind of had it. Polpero itself, so the town, is a place I've been to with my wife. So we stayed there for about, I think it was about seven days, yeah, a week, some of that. And the cottage that they're in is, I have changed certain bits of the cottage, but it's exactly the same cottage that we were in. So when I'm writing inside there, I know the whole kind of how it looks and how it feels and what the space is like and everything. Um, which I think gives the book in the initial opening kind of chapters, that kind of real, uh, what's the word? Uh, Authenticity. That's the one. Uh, Authenticity. <laughs> yeah. Woo. Um, so yeah, it gives it that because I actually did walk around that Harbor. I did kind of climb down to this rock pool. I did walk all over that bit and, you know, see fishermen on there and uh, so everything is based on real life so if ever you want to go to Paul Perro it look the same um, based on real life oh no yeah. have you not met my daughter <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so um and uh yeah getting in the headspace of the actual book so I um I had an idea so I was walking along the beach with my daughter once and um I found one of those um devil's pocket books on the beach so i picked it up and i was showing it to her and it was in the winter and it was really cold and chilly and i said oh look at this this is a devil's pocket book and then uh, it started to rain so we went we, i kept it i don't know why I just thought it was cool so i kept it and then we ran to a coffee shop i went and sat down in there and then i just started i always carry a notebook with me so even when i'm on a walk i've got a notebook to write down anything that springs into my mind and um we were in there sitting down and my wife had gone to order some coffees, which there was a big queue. And I just sat there with this little notebook out and I was just talking to them. And I said, Oh, do you, do you know that sometimes these are sometimes as big as a person? And they're like, no. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And then sometimes they wash up and then inside and it just came into my head. And I was like, and sometimes there's a child inside them. And they were like, and just their rapt kind of attention. I was just like, yeah, I've got something here. So I was just started writing down some notes. Um, and then I've always loved kind of, um, and uh, there was a bit of that I kind of put in there. And uh, and just that kind of whole claustrophobic feel at the start where they're challenging their grief and, and feeling it. And it's just layer upon layer was um, me just imagining that happening to our child. And, you know, like it, there was some, uh, some friends of ours a while back, they lost a child. Um, uh, stillbirths um, or in utero actually and then she had to give birth to to a dead child and just having to having spoken to them about it and what it was like and how suffocating and like just things that you don't even imagine like they had a pair of shoes on their table like little like kind of little tiny little pumpy things for them to wear and there was a receipt under it and it was just the fact that when they came home like they saw that and they were like, how kind of depressing is the fact that we're going to have to take those shoes back, like shoes that have never been worn, like taking them back. And like, what will the people that we return those shoes to think like, oh, are they just returning it or oh, did they lose their kid? Um, like just things like that. And like just having to you take all that time to put up the crib for your baby to sleep in and then there's not going to sleep in it. So you've got to take it down and all of that. And I was just imagining like if that happened to us like to me and my wife like how would we feel both kind of communally but also separately um and uh like the book's dedicated to my daughter sophie and uh when so when my wife was pregnant with her they told us that we had to have a, a c-section because she was kind of positioned in an awkward way that 
I think the placenta was underneath the way out, let's say. So if she was born, it would have torn that and then she'd have suffered catastrophic bleeding. That's what they said. I, that's not a good bedside manner, is it? Like, you know. no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they said, yeah, you'll suffer catastrophic bleeding. So we were like, okay, that's fine. We'll have the cesarean. They were like, okay, that's fine. We'll book you in. So we went along to the booking in appointment and uh, they said, they did the scans and they were like, oh, good news. Like it's moved. So if you want to, you can have a natural birth. So, but we were all geared up to this kind of cesarean section. So we were like, no, no, we'll stick. They said, we'll go outside and think about it. So we went outside, prayed about it. And we were just like, is this the right thing to do? Like, you know, they're the professionals. Like if we, and they made it sound like if we went for the C-section, it was kind of because it was our choice. Like we wanted to have like too posh to push type thing. And it was like, that was like, my wife was kind of dealing with that. And I was just like, look, let's just go back in there. We've already got the date. We already know when it's going to happen. And we've already got things set up. Like my other eldest daughter's like school was all sorted. Someone was going to look after her. So we went back in and said, yeah, we'll go with it. So we went in the next day for the C-section. They did the C-section. And uh, luckily my my daughter was okay. But then my wife kind of like bled out on the table. And then they had to like do like blood transfusions and everything to get her kind of like stable. And then afterwards, the same doctor that said it was okay to just have a natural birth came around and said, oh, it's a good thing you didn't have a natural birth because if you did, you probably would have died. And I was just like, what? <laughs> so like Sophie's kind of my like miracle child, like one that we kind of could have lost, but still have. So, and it's just that kind of just focusing on my own grief and how that whole situation, I could have been a single parent to one child, like in the blink of an eye, if we had gone with the other way and that would have absolutely gutted me. So it was like, like those kind of things I just channeled. And I, I hope I'd done it justice because I think, Men and women, and I, you know, grief is a, a thing that anyone kind of struggles with. But I, I feel that men and women grieve differently from my personal experience and, and friends that I've known. Kind of men almost seem it's changing. The perception is changing, but I think men also they, they kind of feel like they have to do it quicker. They have to get over it. They have to move on. They have to be the provider. They have to kind of be the security. We're not allowed to show emotion. Like I grew up in a in a household like that, um, but it has changed and it is changing. Um, but I feel that, I, and I think it's also because women, uh, well, women that have had a child carry that child, so there is that deep bond of that was with that was me. Like my blood is your blood, your bones are my bones. Um, so there is that element of it as well. Um, you know, I don't know what grief is like for those that have adopted a child or, or not. I'm assuming it's the same. I don't know. But um, but yeah, for those that have kind of given birth and had their own child, I think women that are like that grieve more kind of fully, whereas a man is kind of like, You're right, yeah, that's really bad. Let me try and get on with this and move on. And, and I've seen friends do that. And, um, you know, their wife has really suffered and is still suffering, but they've kind of, oh, I've allotted myself two weeks because I only get two weeks off work to grieve a dead child and now I've got to go back to work and I pull that in a box. Um, so I think, yeah, and I hope I've got that across in the book because grief is yeah different for both, but also when they come together, that grief is kind of shared between them and it becomes kind of claustrophobic, but yeah. 
yeah, I'd say you got that across very well in the book. Um, the the kind of battle between the, between the two main characters and, and kind of their mindsets and how they're processing things, and then even <clears throat> trying to avoid too terrible of spoilers here. Uh, e- even the way that the story and the bad bad develops as it goes, uh, you mm-hmm. kind of see kind of see the evils picking at them in different ways. And I thought that was very reflective of A, their different head, <clears throat> their different headspaces, but B also uh the the societal roles that were kind of mm-hmm. pushed upon them and societal expectations uh that manifested in different ways. But let me let me throw this to you because you kind of know where you want to draw the lines here and I don't. As the story develops, you have a a evil in the story that is particularly suited to assaulting grief horror. So I know for me, whenever I'm trying to come up with a story, I've got kind of the the big picture points I want to get across, the big themes that I want to get across. And then I've got to try to find a monster of the day or whatever it is that marries well with that theme so for you um where did your your antagonist um come from and how did you decide that they were the right antagonist for this story um so i find children quite creepy even though i have two of my own um so i've kind of always like I loved um, the village of the damned by kind of um, John Carpenter. Um, I love kind of like the, I watched the Omen the other day, the original. Uh, it hasn't aged well, but it's still quite creepy. Um, and then like Reagan and the Exorcist, kind of like things like that. Like I do like kind of creepy children. Um, so that as soon as I came up with the idea that it was this child is in one of these sacks and they take it home. I was like, yes, that, that, like I had that bit before I had anything else of the book, like the, the pod and the child, that was what the book was about. And then I built the world kind of around that. Um, And I was thinking, okay, right. So this thing has arrived. So, and it's a child, so it's going to need to be mothered and need to be looked after. It can't just arrive and because it's not like a full grown like adult that it turns up. It's a child, so I was like, okay, so that needs some people. So I was like to look after it. So I was like, okay, and I was thinking like the fisherman that's there. I was thinking these other characters, and I was like, oh no, it needs to have people that have lost something and they've just found something. So I was like, okay, what could that? And I was like, okay, they've lost a child, and then it kind of spiraled from there, and. um yeah, it's difficult to not mention something. Um, <laughs> but there is a, yeah, a longing that this child has. And I've always loved, this will get us around this kind of bit we can't talk about, but I've always loved the idea about um, sin eaters um, in the kind of, I think it's the Catholic Church. And I think there was a film a while ago I watched, but I have read a few books about it and stuff. Um, and there's these kind of like, priests or whatever they're called that are sin eaters so they go around and eat people's sin and, and and kind of do all this kind of stuff and and i love the idea of that so i was kind of i kind of 
use that in a way not that they're, they're sinful but i was like i kind of want something that kind of kind of lives off and kind of feasts on grief and i was like that could and then as the more it kind of sucks those kind of thoughts out of these people and the more it kind of kind of urges them to purge themselves of their grief then this thing can kind of start to barrel along or grow and become what it's supposed to be and all this so yeah and that's kind of like where the kind of monster became it's not really a monster but this is where the kind of part of the story kind of moved because i was like okay so that's that and then because it's doing that it's going to get to this end goal and i and then as soon as i had that i was like right okay but yeah it's quite difficult to talk about one thing because there's there's stuff i could talk about about that one thing but i, I will i will not talk about it yet right um uh, let's let's bail out here uh but everybody listening please take it from me um this thing does barrel along <laughs> it gets it gets big fast uh coming back to grief horror though uh we've hit each of the subjects for today ross is there anything else we need to talk about with grief horror here or is there anything else you'd like to talk about to try to pitch the devil's pocketbook I'll, I'll give a book recommendation. I don't know if people know who Max Porter is uh, in the States, but he's quite a big writer here. Um, he wrote a book uh, called Grief is the Thing with Feathers, okay. um, which is, I would put that up there for me with kind of Pet Cemetery, Crossroads, that book. Like that is is a, is a great book. Um, and then Devil's Pocketbook, yeah, I'm just, I'm excited for it to come out it's just been a blast like i i think of some of the writers that have like blurbed it so you know we've got like jonathan jans and uh josh malaman who's written the introduction for it um like i'm living my best life at the moment like i can't believe that some of these authors who i have enjoyed and read and like devour like their work have thing like these things to say like james fryer who i've spoken about already um so there's kind of two people that made me want to get into writing. Uh, James Fry from when I read A Million Little Pieces and uh, Chuck Pulnick, who did Fight Club. Like those two people, when I read their books, like I've read everything that they've written. Um, and they were the two people that kind of showed me that anything is possible with writing. And um, unfortunately enough, I was able to like interview kind of James Fry years ago um and he was brilliant and like his book was surrounded with controversy with oprah winfrey and like it's supposed to be a kind of biography or biographical details in it but they weren't right and like he said that his publisher told him to do whatever and he said yeah because it was his first book he didn't know what was going on but anyway <laughs> i won't get into that now it's too long but like his work i really enjoy and um, chuck hornicks i really enjoy but like having like josh malaman kind of like lead the charge with this and like do it like offer an introduction and um like he is for me like today's kind of Stephen King like in my mind um like I have all his books I read I read every single thing that comes out like he is another kind of like mainstay for me like he's an inspiration to talk to like his words are brilliant like, and Jonathan Jans like like the Exorcist Rhodes that he wrote should have been the sequel to like the exorcist because it is bloody brilliant um and he again has said wonderful things and then eric larocca like yeah kev harrison 
um like all these people have said such brilliant stuff so hopefully people enjoy it um because i loved it i love if people get half the amount of enjoyment out of it that i got for writing it they'll have a ball because it was brilliant and i loved it um but yes it's available wherever books are sold yeah and we've also got a talk coming up i don't know what i'm plugging it here but anyway um uh on books of horror facebook group um there is a chat uh, with myself and Josh Malaman about the Devil's Pocketbook coming up. I think it's in the beginning of June, 10th of June, I want to say. Um, but it's around then. But yeah. I I saw Andrew from Darklet post about that and joined the Facebook group yesterday. So much <laughs> along. Um, but yeah, okay. Cheers. Thank you so very much for coming on the podcast. This was a great conversation. I loved getting to pick your brain. Uh, we really got into grief horror. <laughs> like I expected this to be a, lot, a a much more like uh story focused conversation, but we went all the way down the dark and despairing <laughs> rabbit hole, didn't we? We did, uh, we did. And uh, kind of signing off here. Uh, if people want to connect with you, learn more about you, find even more of your books, uh, what are your socials? Where can where can people meet up with you? um it's funny i did have a little piece of paper on my desk that said all of this so i could just read it off the top of my head but um i think it's ross jeffrey underscore on twitter which is my main kind of where i am uh, it might even be ross jeffrey author at twitter or underscore who knows but if you type my name into the internet i kind of just regurgitate through all the searches so there's my facebook um twitter i should be more organized i'm so sorry will i, I should have that down um as you can tell, I'm kind of a person that doesn't do social media. Um, but I am on all those platforms. I have a website as well, um, which is on WordPress because I'm not going to pay for a website. Um, but you can find it on there by typing in Ross Jeffrey. Um, and if you can find my Twitter account, there is a link there that just has all the links to everything. So you can you can find me that way. Um, yeah. Right. And also, well, can I just say thank you so much for having me on? It is uh, a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and I just love this kind of podcast. Um, and I wanted to ask you one thing. Okay, sure. What are you working on right now? <laughs> oh, gosh. I am, like, waist deep in just edits and edits and edits. Um, I've got a book called String Them Up coming from Crystal Lake Publishing in September. So I am just going through going through all of that um do i really need this scene yes i need this scene how can i make this scene better i think it's good enough no it's not good enough. i'm right in the thick of that right now uh, just just add some grief horror into it just add some grief horror right 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 kill a couple of kill a couple of kids early on and no yeah, yeah. oh gosh no it actually does kind of dive into that crap okay <laughs> and you said you didn't like grief horror <laughs> i don't i don't uh maybe maybe it's growing on me <laughs> well ross thank you so much for joining us uh listeners thank you for tuning in this closes us out for the week but please before you go do not forget to like subscribe or retreat to a seaside town to mourn the loss of your streaming service of choice uh and stay spooky Coroners tied bells to everybody in the morgue, so if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go.